You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Maggie Lake, and here with me today is Tony Greer, the editor of the Morning Navigator newsletter. Hey there, Tony. How are you? How are you doing today, Maggie? Hard, hard to take a break on a day like today. I'm sure you've been kind of glued to the screen all day. We saw a lot of activity, a lot of volatility. Stocks struggled to try to rally. The Nasdaq's looking like it's going to eke out a game, but the Dow and S&P just couldn't hang on down again. The 10-year yield at an 11-year high, huge moves in bonds, um, huge moves in natural gas. Uh, where do you want to start? Oh, I don't know, Maggie. I was hoping you had the answer to that. Um, you know, it feels like this week, uh, you know, last week we finally saw the market get to some of the cyclical sectors. Um, you know, we had transports, airlines, software, and semiconductors all off 7% last week in that huge slide that we saw after the CPI number. Um, you know, and today we came out with another pretty big PPI inflation number, and it feels like the market is still um, just ripping inflationary expectations from the soul of the market today. Um, you know, continuing to sell off all those cyclicals. You know, we've got a two sigma pullback in the Bloomberg Commodities Index, which is relevant. We've got natural gas off 15%. One of the Freeport LNG export facilities had a big fire, just like all of the food processing plants around the company around the country. Um, and that facility won't be back online for at least 90 days. So that's a lot of natural gas that's not going to get moved. Um, we've got a bit of an outside day down in WTI crude oil with a new high above 125, just under 124, and a sell-off to 118. So, you know, there's a lot of de-risking going on there. It, it seems like the luckily the, the tip of the spear we're out of the way of cryptocurrency has been getting annihilated. Um, and that to me has to do with Bitcoin falling below 30K and Ethereum falling below 1700. Those were huge, huge range bottoms that have given way, as you can see, as the uh, bat signal continues to flash across the sky. And I'm talking about U.S. two-year yields which are last sale 3.42% that came in, um, that settled on Friday at 3.06%. Mm. 
Yeah, so let's put a chart up. We got a chart of that, Tony. And like, I, you know, I, I know uh, you and Duberg, a lot of people who watch the markets for a long time are, are chatting about this. Why is this so important? And and look at that, look at that up line, that spike at the end. I mean, bonds don't normally move like this. Yeah, well, that's right. This is a pretty historic move in the Treasury market, starting off with the Treasury, just the fact that Treasuries are off to their worst start historically. Um, to any year since they've been keeping Treasury data, believe it or not. Um, you know, obviously, we've got a huge rate adjustments toward this inflationary scenario. The markets were spending a long time, you know, really just exercising that great rotation that we've been talking about, where natural natural resources were gaining over technology. And we ran into a bit of a stagflation scare where everybody is thinking now that, a slowdown in the economy due to the higher commodity prices is more likely. So now the market's got to price that in. We see a huge pullback in the break-even five-year over the last two or three days, which has sort of been our barometer for inflation expectations. You know, that pullback has caused these moves in cyclicals and then the commodity space that we see on our screens now. And I'm still pretty confident that the commodity side of the trade and natural resources side of the trade can level off due to the supply side scenarios across commodities. And the technology side of the great rotation is likely to continue lower. I mean, there is all the damage that you want to look for in the commodity space. There are stocks, excuse me, in the technology space, mm -hmm. there are stocks that are now in such severe bear markets that they're in danger of crashing, right? That's when severe crashes happen in bear markets. Um, we've been trying to warn people of that over the last several weeks, and we see a lot of the blowups on our screens now. So it's just the market adjusting to you know different types of data and different themes coming through. But I think overall, we're going to see, you know, this is what the great rotation's greatest fears are, is when the large cap technology stocks take such a beating that they drag indices lower and it lowers, you know, it, it puts pressure on essentially every sector of the S&P, including the energy stocks, which are still the best performing stocks on the year and the um, natural resources names, et cetera, et cetera. So we're seeing a little bit of a rotation where a little bit of the natural resources names give a little back, you know, their gains over technology and that range sort of tightens up. But it's you know it's it's not something that uh, really should shock anyone. You know we're seeing yeah. the commodities put pressure on yields. It feels like for the first time the treasury market has really come unglued with this move to a new low. And most importantly for me, what's changed in the complexion of the market is you know this steepness of the sell-off. We've got a couple of gaps behind us in the Nasdaq now. You know we've got markets falling in vertical fashion. We had a tick index, um, kind of really interesting dynamic in the tick index, which is the New York Stock Exchange up tick minus down tick index that I keep a really close eye on. We just had six consecutive sessions where the low extreme was greater than minus 1,500 on the downside, culminating in yesterday's print, which was minus 2,032 on the downside. Mm -hmm. That is one of only seven prints that we've seen bigger than minus 2000 in the tick index. And that means that there is Godzilla type selling going on out there. And these clusters of large tick index magnitudes remind me of the first quarter 2020 sell off when we went into lockdown. 
So, you know, you have to sit up in your chair during these times, you know, with the VIX in the 30s, you know, being aware that the NASDAQ could take another leg down to a new level. Um, and right now we're sort of fighting the weight of the NASDAQ versus sentiment getting so negative and the sell off getting so steep that at some point there'll be a face melting retracement rally. Yeah. You know? and, and so now we're getting to the point where nobody knows what the next day's direction of the stock market is going to be. And everybody is really going to be held to task on how their portfolio is constructed. And so yeah. that's kind of, you know, if still, if you've managed to stay long or natural resources stocks, then you've been in the technology space or in some of the other sectors, you're still doing a lot better versus the tape. But we've got to get through this period of super high volatility right now because the tape is not liking the uncertainty of what's going to happen to the economy given this inflation situation. Yeah. And so I, I just have to say, Tony, like this is where your years of experience really, really help and that we're able to benefit from it because I think you you laid out perfectly the difficulty of this market. And, you know, I hear the concern in your voice when you're looking at some of these indicators um, because people have suffered a lot of pain already and and we're not through it yet, you know, we're, and it's very hard to to judge what's going on. We're going to unpack a couple of those a couple of the the markets and the things that you talked about, but um, what makes me nervous is with the kind of market you just described, we're heading into a Fed meeting, which now there's the prospect of 75 basis points. We don't know that has you know it's rumored, but really hasn't been telegraphed, uh, you know, by the Fed, and and sort of pulling that sort of surprise would be unlike what they have been doing, although you can understand why, given the inflation prints. And we have quantitative tightening going on. Let's not forget that. That is just taking hold. I mean, that that is something that, you know, is kind of uncharted territory. So there's a lot going on for this market to absorb. And it sounds like you're describing a pretty fragile market. I mean, are you expecting that from the Fed? How are you positioning going into that? Yeah, Maggie, I'm not a biologist, so I can't position go into the Fed and expect, you know, what I'm going to hear from them, right? I, I allowed the market to get the rumors out there of a 75 basis point hike to sort of, you know, see if they can convince the market that they're going to do something finally that is meaningful toward affecting inflation, right? As we've said, we're likely not going to put a cap on inflation unless we raise Fed funds above the rate of inflation. 75 basis points in one meeting would certainly be a step in the right direction. Now that they've sort of managed those expectations right into the markets and, and the treasury markets and equity markets have reacted accordingly, they may not have to raise them 75 basis points now at the next meeting and may be able to just do 50. You know, like I said, I don't know how to predict which way they're going to lean. Mm -hmm. I'd rather just watch the performance going in and sort of make sure my portfolio is okay um, with what the tape is telling me. Because no matter what, no matter whether they do 50 or they do 75, the attack on supply is going to rear its ugly head very soon. And you'll probably see a bid come under commodities as soon as the very precise moment that the de-risking is done. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we may have had a little bit of speculation to clear out of the commodity space. I totally understand and can expect that. I just doubt that we are going to go into a prolonged bear market in commodities like we are in, say, technology in the NASDAQ, right? There's still, um, we still got the attack on supply. We've got super firm statistics in the crude oil market, 
where you know the front month spread is still still 250 bid, two dollars and fifty cents bid. That's extremely backwardated. We've still got the crack spread that's above fifty dollars, which is making life really nice for refineries. We've just got to gauge where this demand destruction is going to settle in, I think. And then once we get a handle on that, I think that we'll go back to rotating where people will want to get their hands on more natural resources names, given what's coming and probably lighten up on the technology that, you know, just blew a hole in their portfolio. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, this is the this is the tricky thing about and you've been talking about this with us for months this the the we know now the fed has signaled that they are going to do what they can do which is try to uh bring down the demand side um and the, this is why we're having this whole debate about discussion but in the past if you would go oh, go after demand in that way between high prices fed policy you it would affect prices but this time this is the unknown right what what the supply what the supply element is that's that we haven't been in this position before um, and that's what you've been talking about, right? This underinvestment and the geopolitical situation. That's exactly it, you know, Maggie. And 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 you can stick with that theme. You know, the administration makes it really easy to stick to your guns on staying long natural resources. You know, the president continues to go up and make comments like he's doing everything he can to alleviate the pressures of Putin's price hike. Right. Talking to Americans like we're idiots and we think that Vladimir Putin caused this, um, you know, as long as they're going to continue to throw, um, you know, diversionary tactics and, and tell you that the economy is in the best position that it's been in in long time and that our American savings are up across the country and literally just lie to your face and sort of, you know, tell you it's raining without going directly into that Um uh, that expression, it makes it really easy to say, yeah, they're going to continue to crush supply. They're going to continue to lie about the causes of inflation. They're going to continue to point at Vladimir Putin for, I mean, literally everything, right, for the results of the last election, for the gas price hikes. You know, so seeing that they are not laying off the gas in any way on the supply side, um, I don't think that any of these problems are going to be alleviated anytime soon, despite, you know, a couple of percent of demand destruction that we may be pricing in right now. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. This is a really good question from Alexander on the RV site. Um, does Tony think that XOP, XLE are shockproof in case of further market turbulence, I don't know that anything is shockproof. Um, but, but you know, what's your feeling about that? Well, it's a good point, Maggie. You know, you know that in um, an all asset class sell-off, correlation goes to one. So if it's on your pad and it can move, you got to get rid of it, right? And so, no, I would, I, I would never say that energy stocks are going to be bulletproof through an all asset class de-risking because that would be foolish to expect. Mm -hmm. I would say that we can look at tells in the energy market like we got yesterday, where there was a severe de-risking across the tape. 
energy went with it for a while, sold off to lows of 118, where there were probably bids stacked for $10. And it traded to a new high as soon as the de-risking stopped, right? So as soon as the NASDAQ found a low, as soon as the S&P found a low, the oil market just churned itself into a new high. And that speaks to how tight the curve is, how tight the backwardation is right now, how profitable it is for the refiners to buy crude oil at any price and mm-hmm. crack it into diesel and gasoline. So if that dynamic remains intact, we'll continue to get tells like as soon as the de-risking stops, people will come back and buy crude oil and gasoline, right? The best thing that would happen for you and I is that gasoline craters from $5 at the pump down to $2 where it came from. Guess what? Not happening under current conditions. Absolutely impossible. So when you kind of get in between there, Maggie, and say, all right, a total collapse is impossible because the supply is not there, right? A pullback is seems reasonable because we're adjusting to a slower economy right now, right? That's what the market's telling us. And as long as price action proves that the crude oil market is healthy, I'm going to continue to take my chances and buy dips in XOP and XLE and manage that risk accordingly, knowing that nothing is bulletproof, but Mm -hmm. knowing that I've got that tell on my side where that attack on supply seems to come right back into the tape as soon as they stop selling their tech stocks. So let's see if that dynamic continues and try to get a read off of that and see if it's safe to buy XLE and XOP on this dip. My sense is that it is. Yeah, really, really well put, um, Tony. And and you're right. You know, when it's a and again, this is where experience comes in. When you see, you know, a, a major market dislocation, people will sell everything, and particularly their winners um, because they can, right? So, um, super important point to to bring up. Um, I'm going to ask you about Nat. We're getting some questions on the Nat Gas action. It was a little confusing for some people today, I think. But want to ask you really quickly. I, I talked to David Rosenberg um, on Friday. Uh, who's in a very different camp with you when it comes to inflation. Um, but he said something interesting about energy. He actually he actually agrees with you on 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 energy, um, but made a distinction with commodities um, about about energy, certain energy stocks looking attractive, but other areas of commodities looking more vulnerable um, and more and more cyclical. So if we're if we're that, you know, again, that supply uh sort of economy demand side, if demand is going to go lower, if the Fed is going to force a recession to try to deal with demand, then metals that may be more cyclical in nature will be more exposed to an economic slowdown, may not have that supply side to support them. What are your thoughts about that? Well, you may not need them because you just nailed it, Maggie. Um, I was just going to suggest that the metal sector is um, the poster child for that argument right now. Right. The metal sector seemed to be soaring the more earlier this year we were talking about net zero, the more we were talking about that transition, you know, the more the president was talking about transitioning the fleet of, you know, government vehicles to EV. You know, that's when um, that sector was flourishing. And, you know, now, like you said, we are pricing in the demand destruction where you would think that metals would still hold their bid as something that has performed very well historically in stagflationary environment. But right now, I think the net zero EV story got a lot of people long, a lot of base metals and a lot of mining stocks. 
And we just now have to make that adjustment into a slowdown in the economy. You know, so you're absolutely right where the, you know, the metal sector seems much more closely tied to the cyclical sectors of the economy than the tip of the commodity spear, which I've been calling natural gas and oil. So, you know, that 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 seems like it's a fair call. And, you know, grains to me are still very much tied to the energy space where unless natural gas and crude oil back off, the grain market is not likely to back off. But you've seen the lumber market come all the way back to yep. you know, do a full U-turn um, from, I can't even remember what the prices are. I haven't looked at the chart, but there's one commodity market that you know really took, um, took the deflationary signals on the chin, mm-hmm. took the higher yields and slowed down in the housing market on the chin. So there's no doubt that sectors of the commodity market are vulnerable. Uh, okay, so Nat Gas um, and, and Ken, uh, sorry, John uh, K. I think that answered your question because he was asking about copper, Freeport, McMoran in particular. Um, we didn't touch on copper, but I think you get the the sense of uh, of that part of the commodity market. Um, Jonas asking on the exchange, what is Tony's take on the Nat Gas action today? And so when people, I think, saw you know, when we, uh, the headline about a facility being taken out at the surface, you would have thought, oh, okay, well, you know, for losing capacity, that would put pressure on prices, but it was the opposite. Taking it offline means there's an oversupply. Is that correct? And and do you expect that to linger? Or is that a temporary? Yeah. So the net, what's going to, what's, what's happening is that the, um, issue at the LNG facility means natural gas that was going to get turned into liquid natural gas and exported is now going to get backed up as natural gas, right? Mm -hmm. So we're not going to be converting that to LNG. That causes a slight backup, um, you know, and a slight growth in supply, you know, and the spot market, and therefore the price comes down. So I think, I think, and I'm not positive, but that's as I understand it. And it seems like that is how the markets reacted to the headlines. So it does make sense that that's the case. And, you know, the, in fairness, the pullback in natural gas has not been steep enough to really test any major moving averages on the way down. So, you know, I'm still looking for this to to settle off. You know, we just broke through the 50 day at seven and three quarters, but we've got a lot of room in natural gas down to, you know, six and a quarter, five and a half dollars. Those are still huge support levels. Natural gas can trade down to those prices and still be in a bull market. Um, the last time the lows, the last time we had a steep pullback, uh, natural gas held 650 twice, which was the old high from 2021. And then we made new highs near $10. So I'm not going to rule out that scenario happening again on a one-off LNG facility incident. Mm-hmm. If there happened to be a string of them, I'll certainly get concerned. But this is the type of thing that the natural gas market is going to have to deal with the entire way. And it's still going to jive with the fact that everyone's storage is well below the five-year average. And so everybody is a bid on the way down. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, very interesting conversation on um, on Real Vision between Mark. 
um, Menervini, Mark Ritchie, and Jared Dillian on how they trade in this kind of environment. And I really think it speaks to the volatility um, and the, the, the sort of really sharp moves we're seeing in a really condensed period of time. Let's play a clip and then we'll talk on the other side. I have to trade within the confines of what mathematically makes sense. So if your average gain on average of your trades, and let's just say you're right 50% of the time, you're wrong 50% of the time, and your average gain is 10%, well, you can't take 10% losses. And that's all there is to it. Mathematically, you will lose money. So, and to make money, you're probably going to have to have a multiple uh, uh, you're going to have to have a multiple of your risk. So 10%, you might only be able to afford a 5% uh, 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 risk or stop, if you will. Yeah. Um, so it has to make mathematical sense. But to answer your question, you know, no, there, there, there is no wiggle room as far as once I draw that line in the sand. And that's, you know, that hindsight is 2020, but it works in both directions. One of the things, one of the things to, just to add to that, we often <laughs> try and tell people is if you're going to be managing risk tight in real time, there are times you're going to feel like a dummy. You're going right. to sell a stock just as it turns back up. But to Mark's point, too, this is why you often have a plan to get back in. Well, that's, that's actually my next question, because there's some weird psychology around getting back into a trade that you already stopped yourself out of. I mean, I personally find it very hard to do. Like, I have, like, emotions around it. Like, oh, okay, I already lost money on this stock. I don't want to lose money on this stock again. I don't want to do it twice. So you have all the, this weird psychology around it. I mean, what do you think about that? Well, I would just ask, do you think the stock knows you? <laughs> you know, the guy, but, And well, it doesn't yeah. care either. Yeah, it doesn't care and it doesn't know you. It's, it's so timely to have that conversation right now, um, just to talk about sort of how to manage in this environment. Um, for those interested, you can see that full avail, uh, interview is available uh, on Plus and Pro, two Plus and Pro members, rather. Um, and Tony, I know for somebody who's been in the trenches and a senior share of bear bull markets and everything in between, um, I'm sure a lot of that relates to you. Yeah, Jared Dillian um, makes a really, really good point is is the the visceral emotion for definitely for beginner traders and even for seasoned traders, the the visceral emotion of buying something back after you've been stopped out of it is quite literally almost impossible to overcome. Right. You really have to learn how to be robotic and leave your emotions out of it and let the market show you what's going on. Right. And I, I only say that it's taken me 30 years to be able to stop myself out of something and then be able to get back into it with no emotion. But because the market tells me that it's the right thing to be back in it, you know, and you kind of get that experience from being on the floor. And I don't know how you would get the experience if you were not a floor trader, quite honestly, of yeah. buying things back. Because the whole, you know, the whole mantra in the floor is, you know, as a local, you're trying to make money off of the flows. So while you might stop yourself out of a long at a certain price, if you're a local on the floor and you see paper bids show up at the same time, you don't think twice. You get right back into that position in the, in one second and you've got it back on and you are ready to go and you're watching all of the um, stimuli around you and you see what changed, right? And a lot of times from not being on the floor and not seeing that flow and not seeing when things change, mm. it's really hard to get back into a trade that just costs you money. It really yeah. is. So that's, that's a great point. 
It's really hard. And I think uh, that, you know, I think that when Mark was talking about having a plan, uh, you know, I, I think that helps. By the way, that interview is part of a series that that we're doing dealing with issues like this, which I think is going to be so helpful to so many people during this time when we're all trying to figure it out. Um, and Jared and Tony were nice enough to come on a podcast with me, by the way, My Life in Four Trades, where we talked a lot about this, like a lot about the emotional backdrop of having to deal with these really difficult times and like the, the mistakes everyone has learned um, through their career and, and how they've kind of brought it forward. Um, and, and they're just really, really worthwhile. So I encourage you all to check that out. Tony, we haven't even gotten to stocks yet, believe it or not. I mean, there's so much else going on, but um, are you looking for any opportunity here or is it just such a perilous environment that that you have to really think about capital preservation at this point? Survival mode is on top right now, right? It's it's not like, you know, Mark Mobius said, um, you know, you're going to make yourself look like an idiot eight ways through Sunday in this tape. It is impossible to navigate this without making mistakes. You know what I mean? Like, I, I can tell you that I've already made mistakes this week. In hindsight, I can't say that I've changed. I would change any of those decisions. And so the idea about trading is you just got to keep mo moving forward, mm -hmm. you know? So, so I would say that the opportunity to me still is going to be to buy the energy stocks on this dip, the dip in energy. You know, if you weren't looking at any other chart except for XLE or XOP, You'd say, well, this is a nice looking friendly trend here. You know, it's been cruising along for a couple of years. We just saw a nice dip into the moving averages and the risk reward sure looks right to give it a try. So I got a feeling that that that's the trade that's going to shine through in the end. And I'm kind of trying to figure out how to plot my way into that, whether this is the bottom right here in the energy dip or we have another 10 percent to go. I sure as hell don't know, but I'm willing to take some risk within that move. That's for sure, especially if the fossil fuel complex stays together like it has through this de-risking. I mean, structure has held together like a rock. So I'm going to assume, like we've just discussed, that as soon as the de-risking is over, we may be right back in an energy bull market. So I've got to plot my way into the stocks. Um, I've got my plot my way out of a triple Q short that I've had on my books for a couple of months now. I have definitely suggested to my clients to take something off on this type of a sell-off because nobody knows where the bottom is. The trade's been good to us. And everyone knows that in bear markets, the hairiest thing that you experience are the retracement rallies. So, you know, hopefully we're, you know, we're, what we're doing right now, Maggie, is bobbing and weaving and, and yeah. trying to stay alive and trying to maintain gains that we've got on the year and fight our way out of this. And anybody that tells you that this is easy is probably speaking out of school. Yeah. And and it doesn't help that we've seen stocks and bonds go lower together. I mean, there's really been, except for the dollar, um, it's been hard to find something that that has has been working consistently. So it's you have to be really nimble. Um, Tony, uh, you mentioned the crypto carnage has just been brutal. Uh, Coinbase down what something like eighty percent year to date. News today, they're laying off eighteen percent of their staff. Um, any thoughts on what's happening in that space for some of the currencies? And is there any bleed over that we're seeing as people have to kind of make margin calls and um, and deal with the losses there? Yeah, you know, I'm sure that there are plenty of institutions that bought into the full Bitcoin craze and, you know, are are seeing, you know, their investment come apart and they've had to liquidate. So it seems like the tape has got tire tracks like that on it where large you know, um, committed bodies to the crypto space have said, let's take our bet size down. 
Um, the story to me is you need to look no further than being able to earn 3% in the U.S. two-year yield, 1.5% in German 10-year yields. I mean, you know, these are unbelievable yields compared to what the markets have seen in the last 10, 15 years. So, you know, if I'm going to be sitting there where central banks pushed me all the way out the curve to a place where I was trading the cryptocurrency market, trying to trying to make five or eight or 10 or 20 percent, um, they lay up a three percent bet for me in the U.S. two year yield and I can park some cash in there while the world's gone batshit crazy. Man, I'm going to take them up on that every single time just to just to take a breath from the risk taking that I've been doing for the last several years. So I think that that's what tells the story that runaway train and the two year yields is probably likely responsible for why crypto is coming apart. At least that's my perception. And I'm not a master of crypto trading at all. Yeah. But you said it at the very top. It is just risk off, just risk averse risk off right now in this if, if if cryptocurrency was a levered bet on risk assets, then it is absolutely going to get demolished in a de-risking, unfortunately. It's going to be a, an interesting couple of days, Tony. So appreciate you being with us as always. It's my pleasure. We'll see how the week shakes out, Maggie. We got three or four more days. Everybody's talking about you know, the, the potential for a turnaround Tuesday that didn't happen. Everybody's talking about the market being oversold. And as long as two-year yields keep ripping higher, I am afraid to pick a bottom in this tape. So that's my stance, just to close up. Yep, love it. Now, we are going to be talking about all this, of course, tomorrow. We've got uh, Andreas Stano-Larsen um, with uh, Joseph Wang, the Fed guy, on um which is going to be fantastic. They're going to kind of break down everything we hear. We'll see what we get. And in terms of the, uh, again, the pain and, and the volatility in crypto, we'll be diving into all of that um, in this week's Crypto Unwrap. That's our new live show that airs every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7.30 in Mumbai, and 10 p.m. in Hong Kong. So be sure to check all that out. Thanks for being with us. Take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.